All right, good morning. Like Pastor Peter said, my name is Jesus. I'm usually doing this up here, but uh, thank you, Spencer, for covering for me today. Um, It is a privilege to stand up here and preach for you guys, with you guys, to you guys. Um, Like Peter said, we're going to be talking a little bit about racism today, and it's already quiet in here. (laughs) So let's just address the big brown elephant in the room real quick. I'm not up here because I'm brown. And the reason I say that is this. I've not lived the life to stand up here on my own accolades or my own suffering that makes me an authority on racism. All right? You guys, is that understandable? Do you get that? Ms. Hatfield, you get that? Yes? I want to open the word with you guys. I want us to look at the scripture. But it's not me. It's not my experience that I'm trying to bring to you. It's, I'm trying to bring to you the word, and hopefully it will make some sense. As I babble through it, all right? So to break the tension a little bit, I thought I'd start with a couple of jokes. All right? All right. Why was the bunker so sad? Okay. Because he got picked last. Because he always got picked last. How did the little boy feel when his pencil was dark? Disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it worked. Yeah. That's my nephew, Josiah. He's four years old. So he he helped me last year. So I'm hoping that'll win me some credit again this time. All right. um, Let's pray before we start and we'll, we'll get into it. Father, I just, I come before you now, Lord, take the nerves, take the anxiety. I pray that your word would speak clearly, that our hearts would be open to your truth, that the love that you have for your people would be clearly conveyed through me, and that you would spur us on toward action, because we are you, we are you to these people that you have in our lives. And so, Father, meet us here, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at the issue of racism. The title of the sermon is The Place Where Race Has No Reason to Reign. If you've paid any attention to the news over the last few years, you've seen that race relations in our country have been pretty contentious. Whether it was an event on the streets of the inner city, whether it was policy debates in our recent election, race and racism have come to the forefront of American culture again. A lot of commentators are even noting similarities between today and the uprising of the 60s, just the tension that's there. Over the last few weeks here at Grace, we've been talking about how here in the church, we're family. We are family. Our love for one another doesn't stem from circumstances. It doesn't stem from affiliations. It comes from our identity in Christ. That's what we've been seeing. God has chosen us and he saved us and he put us together in this place that he called the church. Today what I want us to look at is the fact that racism has no place in God's church. And racism has no place in the hearts of God's people. Zero. We're going to look at a lot of verses today. If you look at your outline, there's a lot in there. Have your Bible. Get ready. Um, But we're not going to go too deep into them because we're covering a lot of ground, all right? 
So let's just start with the definition. What is race? Merriam-Webster defines race like this. Any one of the groups that human beings can be divided into based on shared distinctive physical traits. That's the key, physical traits. Something about you physically, you group those people together, that's a race. There in your outline, you have the definition of racism. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities. And that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. I think that's the part that kind of stands out to the most of us probably. That racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. So because you're white, you are better than in this area. Or because you're black, you're better in this area is what racism says. So what I want to look at to start is four reasons why racism is unbiblical. Just categorically. It's unbiblical. All right, so we'll start in chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Point number one. The reason, first reason why racism is unbiblical, we all come from one common ancestor in Adam. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over all the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see here in this first chapter of Genesis the account of the creation of people. And if you follow the genealogies this way toward us, or if you follow your genealogies back this way toward Adam, what you'll find is they all come back here. They come to a head at Adam. We don't have an account of Adam and Eve and then these people with red hair that God created who are a lower class of people. We have Adam and Eve and that's it. So how do we account for differences, right? We have black people and white people and people with slanted eyes, all these different variations today. In God's providence, he's created the ability for our bodies to adapt to our environments, to our surroundings. In Genesis chapter 11, you see the Tower of Babel. There was common language. Babel happens. God scatters people by their language. He confuses their languages. And so by necessity, they group together with the people that understand their own language, and they go and start living separately. Those people start, you know, having their own children and populating, and people spread out. As people spread out, we get diversity. In God's providence, he's made our bodies that way. And so the differences that we see are due to diversity, environmental adaptation. It's not that at the core... People are different, and we see that through color. You see there in your outline, there's a quote. I pulled it up from Psychology Today. Agustin Fuentes says this, There is no genetic sequence unique to blacks or whites or Asians. In fact, these categories don't reflect biological groupings at all. There's more genetic variation in the diverse populations from the continent of Africa than exists in all populations outside of Africa. Combined. There are no specific racial genes. Something like an idea that, you know, if you have dark skin, you're lower on the evolutionary scale. It's completely false. There is no genetic basis for racism. So we see from Scripture that there's no biological basis for racial discrimination. 
genetics is validating the same truth, you know, it's telling us, us humans, we're all more similar, biologically similar, than dissimilar, regardless of what we look like. Let's go to reason number two that racism is not biblical. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Reason number two, racism is unbiblical, is because we are all created in God's image. As you look at the account of creation, humans are the only thing that is created in God's image. This idea of image bearing has a few different implications, and we don't have time to get into them. But suffice it to say that this is what makes people different from the rest of creation. That we are God's image, made in God's image, sets us apart from the animals. Because we're all made in his image, all people are cherished by God. Every one of us. Red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight. That's a great truth. That's a great truth. And racism distorts this truth. And it says that only certain people are precious to God. Racism disregards that God-given value. It puts qualifiers on human dignity that God did not put in place when he created us. All people are created in God's image. Not just red or yellow or black. All are precious in his sight. So here in the very first chapter of Genesis, we see that, one, we're created in Adam. We're all, we all come from Adam. We're all the same. And two, we're all created in the image of God. Reason number three, that racism is unbiblical. Scripture is clear that Christ came to save all classes of people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. To this point in scripture, we're in the New Testament now. Jesus has already come. He's lived his life. He's died. He's ascended. The early church was forming. And really, it seemed like salvation was only for the Jewish people. It was the tenor of of how it seems like people were understanding. In this account here in Acts chapter 10, what we see is the unfolding of God's greater plan to save people outside of the Jewish people. What the scripture calls the Gentiles. This is, really, this is a really important chapter in salvation history, in the narrative of scripture, because you and I are not Jews. You and I have a personal stake in this chapter, because this is where we see our inclusion as Gentiles into salvation. Does that make sense? We were outside, we were not Jews. And here we see the folding in of the non-Jews, the Gentiles, into God's plan of salvation. So let's read through this. We're going to skip around a little bit, but we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 10. Point number 3, Christ came to save all classes of people. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he, clearly, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. 
He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So just as an aside, Cornelius was not a Jew. Peter is a Jew. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So this was, according to Jewish custom, there was a lot of dietary restrictions. They weren't supposed to eat this list of foods. So Peter's not saying something crazy here. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So this vision ends and the men show up. The men that Cornelius sent show up at Peter's house. They tell him, hey, our boss sent us. He wants you to come back. So Peter obeys them. He goes back with them to Cornelius' house. Look at verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit one of an- anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? So Cornelius tells Peter his side of the story. I had a vision. The angel told me all this stuff. And at the end of verse 33, Cornelius says this, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Let's pick it up in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is there any confusion here? Does Peter mince his words at all? No way. Here we see clearly that Christ came to save all classes of people. If you go down to verse 44, if you look at the heading there, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was a big deal. The Jews, the disciples were together, the Spirit came. That was huge. The end of this account is the same thing that happens to the Gentiles. The Spirit comes and falls on the Gentiles while Peter is there. God brought his spirit to the Gentiles in the same way he brought his spirit to the Jews. Jesus came to save all classes of people. The Gentiles were not an afterthought in God's redemptive plan. It was his plan from the beginning to save people from all nations. Think about it, guys. If God's heart is bent towards saving people of all nations, then shouldn't ours be too? We need to be willing to share Christ with whoever God puts in our path regardless of where they come from. Like Peter said, God shows no partiality. So in points one and two, we see that there's not a biological justification for racism. 
And here in Acts chapter 10, we see that there's no spiritual justification for racism. God is saving people from all different nations. And that brings us to point number four. God's kingdom will include people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 7. Don't turn there. Stay here in Acts. The Apostle John says this, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. This is the kingdom that God is building. Different languages, different colors, different appearances. So let me ask you this question. We're only here on earth for a short amount of time. I think we all understand that. You only have a limited amount of effort, time, resources that you can use. God's kingdom is going to include people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. What does the kingdom that you're building look like? Think about that. You're doing something. You're building something. Does it look like God's kingdom? As we move into application, I'm going to refer back to this idea of kingdom building. Where are your efforts going? Does the kingdom that you're working to build look as diverse as the kingdom that God is building? So in these four points, we've seen that racism is unbiblical. I hope you can see that. So what should we do? How do we align our efforts with with the the work that God is doing in this area of racial reconciliation? I have three things that I want to look at together. Let's go back to Acts. We ended at the end of chapter 10, right? Peter has this amazing experience. He's there with the Gentiles. The Spirit comes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, Lord. Chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Wait, what? The spirit, this amazing movement, and this is what they have to say. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Verse 5 through 16 is the story. Look at verse 17, chapter 11. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This is Peter talking. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Point number one, exhortation number one, encouragement number one, reconciliation is going to require you to go outside of your comfort zone. Peter experienced it and went back to these guys that he was a part of, these Jewish men, and he took heat from them. He took heat for going to these Gentiles. And he stood his ground. (laughs) I think hopefully if we had seen the vision and experienced random strangers show up that say God sent them in a vision. I hope we'd stand our ground too, right? But he stood his ground and he won them over. 
He was in a tough predicament, but he did what was right. Yes. Amen. Good job, Peter. Stand your ground. It's going to be hard, and we need to observe that, right? Well, this is Acts 11. We think this happened somewhere around Acts 15. Peter has a change of heart. Paul writes about it in Galatians. He says this, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when the Jewish men came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Wait, what? The same Peter that went to the Jews and stood his ground and said, yes, the Gentiles are part of the kingdom. Somewhere later on, is with those same Gentiles, he hears about these guys coming from James, and he backs away. There he is, right? Eating his bacon, enjoying it with the Gentiles, <laughs> listening to rap music, clapping on two and four. Everything's going well. <laughs> but then these Jews come, and he says he drew back. Even Peter fell prey to his peers. Even Peter fell prey to the pressure that the religious majority that he was part of put on him. So we see crossing the line toward racial reconciliation is going to put you in difficult situations. Just know that. Expect that. For my minority brothers and sisters, we need to be patient and not be so defensive with each other. We can't be so easily offended. If our white brothers are going to make an effort, we need to humbly acknowledge that effort. We need to be ready for them to say something that just doesn't sound right. And we need to be willing to lovingly talk through them with that. Amen? This is what it's going to take. It's going to be hard. And to our white brothers and sisters, we need to be willing to be uncomfortable. Especially in you know, Southern culture, we don't want to intrude. We don't want to offend. I don't want to say anything wrong. We have to get over that. We have to get over that. We need to be in each other's homes. We need to be sharing meals with each other. For the purpose of being a spiritual family, we must begin crossing these lines. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. So I know this is going to be difficult on both sides. But don't let that discourage you. You're working to build a kingdom that looks like God's kingdom. Let that motivate you beyond the difficulties. Amen? Amen. The second thing that comes to mind as we strive for racial reconciliation, point number two there on your outline. Christians must, I can't emphasize this enough, must be characterized by love in all of our interactions. You see those verses listed there? Let me just kind of brush over them. First Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. First Corinthians, if I have languages and gifts and faith and I'm charitable, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Mark, love your neighbor as yourself. John, this is how you will know you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. Love. I mean, First John, in this we know 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, right? He who does not love does not know God. Whew. Good grief. It's all over the scriptures. Love. We need to be characterized by love. In his book, Messy Grace, Caleb Kaltenbach says this, Love is the tension between grace and truth. Think about that for a second. Love is the tension between grace and truth. We can't always just be about truth and about the law and about bringing down the hammer when people are wrong. And we can't always just be about grace and say, well, there's no right or wrong, so we're just going to show you love and accept you exactly as you are. Love is somewhere in between. Love is the tension between grace and truth. I really liked that. The story he uses in, this, in, the, in his book is from John chapter 8, the woman that was caught in adultery. You remember that? So Jesus is at the temple teaching, and the Pharisees drag this woman out, and they tell him, hey, we caught her in adultery. They're all there. They have their stones. They say the law tells us we should stone her. What should we do? Jesus turned around, and he says, hey, let the one among you that's without sin throw the first stone. And they all drop their stones, and they walk away. The account ends like this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Who has condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wait, what? Doesn't, it's not saying that she wasn't guilty. It's not saying that she was caught in this, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's not. What do you think? No, she was guilty. And for some reason... Jesus doesn't exactly look past her sin because he says, go leave your life of sin. He acknowledges that she's wrong. But he doesn't bring down the weight of the law either. And these guys go away. What is that? I think in, in church culture, we've gotten really good at just bringing down the hammer, at least even if it's just in our minds. Maybe we're jumping there too quickly. Love is the tension between grace and truth. I thought also about the Samaritan woman. Jesus meets this woman at the well, tells her about her life, tells her about her five husbands. She goes away, and that, that story ends like this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. That could have ended really differently. Jesus could have said, get out of here. She knew. She told him, hey, I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? That could have ended really differently. But however he chose to show her love, sent her away in such a way that people came back and were saved because of it. He didn't slam her over the head and he didn't ignore her sin. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Look at that, the end of that quote in your outline. When you choose to love people who think and act differently than you, the situation can get extremely messy. We have to be willing to enter into those messy relationships. So I ask you again, whose kingdom are you building as you interact with people? Can you say that you're characterized by love? Let's take a detour off this road that I think has gone okay so far. Yes, we're all right? We're all right? Good. Let's, let's drive off into the landmine field for a second. What comes to your mind 
when, you, when I say the term illegal immigrants? Canadians, right? No? Crossing the border, bringing their maple syrup, their funny accents. A? Oh, is that not what you thought of? What comes to mind? We need to deport them. Why? Because they don't belong here. They're illegal. They're criminals, apparently, is what I learned. They're criminals. They're taking jobs. They're a burden on the system. Whether you agree or disagree with, that, with those ideas, I want to ask you this question. What kingdom is being defended by deporting those immigrants? Is it God's kingdom? Is it President Trump's kingdom? Is it your kingdom? Is there any gospel in those reasons for deporting people? We've been called to be characterized by love. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to deport illegals. I'm not saying they should all get amnesty either. If I'm being perfectly honest with you guys, I don't have an answer to the problem either. I I don't know. It's a terribly complicated situation. But I'm asking you to consider your motivations. What is your primary motivator? Is it love? 1 Corinthians 13 says that if how you're thinking and what you're saying about illegal immigration is not loving, then you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How about this term, Black Lives Matter? A lot in the news, right? Body cameras, police violence, internet films. and Have you been thinking about this stuff? You just get frustrated? Are you tired of hearing about it? You're tired of the tenor? Or maybe it grieves you. Maybe it makes you long for heaven. But again, when you hear the news about these things, where do your thoughts go? You know, on social media, I've seen a lot of this, well, all lives matter. Is that really the most loving thing we can say in these moments? Christian? Think about it. Let's imagine someone you love dies because of breast cancer. A family member, loved one, whatever. Two weeks later is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so you go join a march. And there you are out there, marching in memory of this person you love. Shirts and pictures and the whole nine. And whatever, you're somewhere along there or you get to the end and you come across someone and they say, Hey, it's not just breast cancer that matters. All cancer matters. Does that sound loving? Is it true all cancer matters? Absolutely. It absolutely is. Is it true all lives matter? Absolutely. But is that the loving response we should be giving to these people in their time of distress? Of course, there are extenuating circumstances around all of these events. Those can be discussed and debated. But what is your first response? Is it loving? What what has your lasting response been? Where is your disposition today? Colossians 4 says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. 
So to bring it back to point number two, Christians must be characterized by love. Here you go. What would the people in your life say that you stand for? Your neighbors, your coworkers, what would they say? If the people in your life know you most for your political views, whichever way those lean, maybe you need to consider the possibility that you've been fighting to defend and build the wrong kingdom. Do people know you for your opinions? Or would people say that they know Jesus better because of the time that they spend with you and because of the love that you show them? Christians must be characterized by love in all of our interactions. Amen? Number three. Exhortation number three. Keep this in mind as we go forward and re- toward racial reconciliation. We need to try to understand the struggles of others so that we can show godly compassion. To this point, I've really made an effort to stay close to Scripture because I don't want you to come back to these points and say, well, he was wrong. I want you to go here. I want you to go to this word and argue with this thing. To be completely honest with you, point number three here was born out of my experience in preparing for this sermon. I talked to a lot of people. I read a lot of literature. And uh, I think this is just, it needs to be said. I think it's really helpful. And so I, I present it to you guys. I just want to be transparent about that. This is my my learnings. Um, here in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, our racial tension is very black-white still. I've been here for about four years now, and I've, I can see that. I've, I, I experienced that. And so I did a lot of the reading that I did in that area, the black struggle, the white struggle, what that looks like. My own personal experiences up here, I've been followed around in stores. You know, you go to one side of town, and they follow you around because who knows what he's going to do. I go to the other side of town and I get ignored. There's no way this guy's going to shop in here. He can't afford this stuff. So, you know, I, I've felt that. And I remember when my wife, my wife was up here singing. Um, I remember when she realized that people look at us when we're out in public. And I get it, right? It's sticky. Nobody follows me around saying, I'm following you because you're brown. There's no sign. So I can't say for sure that that's why they're following me, right? Like, I don't know. And I get it. Like, I have this face that only a mother can love on payday, right? Like, so you see me and my wife together, I would probably be looking too. Like, what's going on there? But the reality of what I learned is my pity party story does not, brothers and sisters, hear me say this, does not compare to the hardships that our black brothers and sisters face. It just does not. I want to share with you some perspective, but I need to say this. You have to suspend judgment for this moment. I want you to hear the experience that I'm going to convey to you. Don't judge what it's saying. Just hear it. Just listen to it. James Baldwin was an author and an activist in the 60s. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Edgar Mevers. He said this on a TV show, the Dick Cavett show in the 60s. The panel tried to push him and say, you know, it's getting better. Black, white, why are we still stuck on this black and white? 
This is what he said. He said, I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. But I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris, with $40 in my pocket, on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than had already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you have to be able to turn off all the antennae with which you live. Because when you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. Black man in the 60s. And it's very hard to sit at a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, every body. He goes on to say, I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only conclude what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is black. I know, as Martin Luther King once put it, the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means I can't afford to trust the most... It means I can't afford to trust most white Christians. And I certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter. But I know that I'm not in their union. I don't know whether the real estate lobby has anything against black people. But I know that the real estate lobby is keeping me in the ghetto. I I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people. But I know the textbooks they give to my children to read and the school we have to go to. This is how he concludes. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my sister, and my children on some idealism, which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Wow. James Baldwin in the 60s. How about this? In the 1990s, there was a cultural commentator and a poet named Tupac Shakur. And he said this, I see no changes. I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living or should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops don't care about a Negro. If a cop kills a brother, he's a hero. Give crack to the kids, who cares? One less ugly mouth on welfare. My mama didn't raise no fool. As long as I stay black, I got to stay strapped. And I never get to lay back because I always got to worry about the paybacks. Some young buck that I roughed up way back coming back after all these years. Rat-a-tat-tat, that's the way it is. Can you relate? Nope. Nope. Me either. How about one more? Time Magazine. The realities of raising a race, uh, diff, excuse me, the realities of raising a kid of a different race. Robin Wells believes she went into the adoption of her Ethiopian son with eyes wide open. She and her husband Timothy brought Ben home when he was four years old. The Wells are white and live in Champaign, Illinois, a multicultural university town, and have gone to some, and have gone to some effort to create a diverse environment for their son and their three biological daughters. 
Wells knew that raising a black son would, wouldn't be easy. I figured I'd have to explain some name-calling, have hard talks about language, navigate the waters when somebody's parents won't let my son take their daughter to prom, she says. But what I have been surprised by is this. At no point in the process of considering transracial adoption did I think I would have to teach my son how to stay alive. First, she says of her awakening, there was a shooting of Trayvon Martin in 2012. At that same time, Ben was a six-year-old boy who had just learned to ride his bike after only two trips up and down the driveway with his father running alongside him. It was awful, she says. But I thought, as every white privileged parent wants to think, maybe this is an isolated incident. As events quickly proved, it was not. Guys, family, the realities that our black brothers and sisters experience are something we're completely blind to. The reason we can say we don't see color, we don't see race, is because you can get away from it. You can go to a place where you look like everyone else and racism is not a part of your reality. When we're here in Northern Kentucky, my wife never mentions being white. She's never come home from a day at work and just been like, oh man, I'm so white. <laughs> when we go to LA, the hometown I grew up in is 90% Hispanic, the same way NKY is 90% white. We come home from a volleyball game or something, some church function, and she says, I'm so white. <laughs> As long as we stay in our comfort zones, we won't even know what we don't know. We don't understand the struggles that minorities are going through because we don't even know that they're struggling. We're blind to it. As I talk to people, one of the people that I talk to is part of our church, Isaac Keen. He's doing a lot of ministry up at NKU. I thought this was really helpful. This is what he said, and we'll end here. Education should push us toward compassion. We don't know what others are going through. But if we want to love and serve and reach them, we need to educate ourselves on what they're experiencing. Read a book, listen to an audio book, watch a film, make a friend. If you want, to, if you want your heart to grow in the, of, in the area of racial reconciliation, start learning about the struggles of the people that you want to reach. I present those perspectives to you for that purpose. There's a reality that neither you nor I know. And so as we wrap up, just two absolutely practical steps that you can take. First is prayer. Here's the question that Lisa and my wife and I were smacked upside the head with in Chicago a few months back. Are you even praying for racial reconciliation? And we heard that answer at a forum and we just looked at each other in disgust and amazement. We're not even praying in this area. Step one, pray. Pray that God would give you a heart for racial reconciliation. And if you're there or if he grants you that, step two, learn. The struggle that is causing this tension, this racial tension, 
Like I said, we don't understand the other side. But we can learn, and we can try, and we can make that effort. Amen? Especially in the church, guys. Especially in the church. We're a family. Our identity is in Christ. It's not in anything else. Let's not let these cultural barriers keep us from one another, keep us from being a family. The rest of the world looks just like this. White, black, brown, people separate. Let's not let the church be another place like that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words have been gentle yet convicting. I pray that your truth sits deep in our hearts, that we might be motivated by love, that we might be defined by love and known for loving. Help us to see, Lord. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to see the way you see people. Thank you, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.